Good morning, good evening, and good day. You're listening to Drama Buds, an anima podcast. So hello everyone, welcome to today's episode of Drama Buds, another first impressions episode. I, I thought I was done with these, but more shows started airing towards the end of March, so... Yeah, we're here today. It's actually weird, the two shows we have today. They only started airing two weeks ago, and we're already technically halfway through the entire show. So I think like that's enough for me to say that I know where the story is going. So today, we're talking about soundtrack number one and Pachinko. <laughs> Okay, first up, we have soundtrack number one. Brief background of the show and its makers. Uh, it's directed by the same director as Vincenzo. The writer, I think, is a rookie. I didn't see any other works before. And it stars Park Yong-shik, who I've seen in Happiness and in Suits. And Han So-hee, of course, our iconic Dakyong in The World of the Married. And our also iconic Nabi in Nevertheless. Well, here are the tropes. I feel like just by telling you what the tropes of the show are, you know what it's all about. Friends the lovers, unrequited love, one-sided pining, cohabitation? Mmm, a good one. You can tell, it's pretty simple. Actually, what's weird about this show is that it's it's like a two-hour movie that's just been split into four parts of like 30 minutes each. It's weird. I don't fully understand why they had to like make it into a series instead of just releasing it as a full you know, TV movie. But, eh, you know, it's experimental. And I think it's helpful to view it as like a drama special. Like KBS, SBS, NBC, they have these drama specials every year, right? So like three, four episodes of this length. So yeah, don't expect much. This is all it's going to be, and it's all it's going to give you. Um, that's a pretty helpful way of looking at the show. First impressions on it, well, it's pretty, right? The cinematography looks great. It reminds me of One Spring Night. The, you know, petals falling off a tree everywhere at night, and you're walking beside each other in, like, thick coats and scarves. It's just very intimate, very calm vibe. Yeah, it's, it's nice. And what else about the acting, I guess? Park Yung-shik, mm, he's okay. I don't know. He's okay. The role isn't asking for much, but he's okay. Han So-hee, this is the first time I've seen her this, like, normal and lively. This is the liveliest I've seen her in all her roles. So that's good for her. Once again, the roles are not asking for much. They are doing a perfectly fine job. And then we enter episode two. The halfway point of the show. That's such a weird thing to say. But yeah, at first, I thought the chemistry between them was good. But I think I was just confusing chemistry with like my fondness for domestic fluff. You know, they were cooking with each other and cleaning and just sitting beside each other at home. Look, domestic fluff is cute. But when like the story kind of started picking up quote unquote because the story doesn't really pick up at any point I, I started seeing how telegraphed all of the supposed moments of intimacy were you know that it's a 
quote-unquote moment because they're slow-mo or the music changes or they have uh, close shots, tight shots on their hands or their eyes or their facial expressions and they back away from each other awkwardly and slowly, right? Because like, oh, it's a moment because that's what the director is showing us. It's, it's the editing that's telling us that it's a moment. I think the problem with something this short is you're jumping into their lives very suddenly and everything's established. It's an established relationship. But you don't really have a lot of points of comparison to before things started to change and after they started to change. The eternal problem of friends to lovers is why would they start falling now? Or why would they start acknowledging their feelings now if they've been pining for so long? There has to be like a turning point or a very important change in either one of their lives for things to start developing romantically. So in this show, the turning point is obviously the cohabitation. You are stuck in a small space with someone. You cannot help but you know have these intimate moments. It's very intimate to live with someone. So I understand the turning point. It's just a little too obvious, right? When they're having moments. And I didn't see enough of their relationship before the cohabitation to know that this isn't like a normal thing. That this is unique. This is truly something changing between them. It's just... Oh, it's a moment because the director edited it to look like a moment. It's a little inorganic. It's a little forced. But, you know, it is what it is. And writing-wise, so that's a little nitpick in the directing. Writing-wise, I got really annoyed when Sun Wu, uh, Yongshik's character, when he started acting petty and jealous when Unsu was talking to this producer, this composer that she really admired and wanted to work with. The usual, like, oh, she doesn't actually like oranges, mandarin oranges, but she pretends to like it because that's what the producer is offering. And then he notices that and is like, oh, but don't you hate this? As if he's showing off that he knows her better than this producer when she's just being polite and trying to be nice to the person that she really wants to work with. And then just interrupting their meeting to make side comments and just being disruptive in general. And it's supposed to be cute because, oh, he's jealous. He's being petty because he's jealous because he likes her. And he's jealous that she really likes this composer, this producer, whether or not it's romantic. But it's annoying because that is her livelihood. You know, that's her career. We do not mess with someone's career. Yeah, that annoyed me. <laughs> and the ending of episode two was... Uh, Unsu discovering that Sunu has all these pictures of her over the years because he's a photographer. She's a songwriter and he's a photographer. And you know, she discovers all the pictures that he's been taking of her all through the years well, that she didn't know of. And you know what? If he were not the male lead, if they were not best friends, this would be very creepy. <laughs> it's very creepy, but hey, he's the male lead. So it's romantic. We're, we're supposed to see that as romantic. Okay. Well, all these things I'm saying, all my complaints are nitpicks for a show that does not really need this level of analysis and attention. It just has to be pretty. And you know what? It's pretty. So I'll take it. Yeah, it's fine as it is. The verdict is that I'm finishing it, not because I'm particularly interested or because I like what it's serving up for what it is, but just because it's, you know, it's only one more hour of my life. It's just two episodes of a K-drama. All right? It's fine. Of all the worries people seem to find, and 
Okay, so we move on to the other show we're going to talk about today, which I feel like I can say a lot more about. So we are talking about Pachinko, and brief background on the show, it's based on a novel, and it was written and directed by Asian-Americans, right? So it's not really a Korean drama, Korean-produced drama. And it stars Yun Yo Jong, Lee Min Ho, Jong Eun Che, and Kim Min Ha. I only mentioned the ones that are in the Korean entertainment industry. There are lots of you know multinational production, Americans, Japanese. Yeah, it's it's a huge project. As I mentioned, this is produced by Americans. So I personally am not watching it like I would watch a K-drama. I don't have the same expectations for it as I would with a K-drama. Uh, I'm watching it as an American TV series in the Korean language and also Japanese and English. Uh, disclaimer though, I have not read the novel, okay? I don't have the best background on the novel and what the entire story is and its themes. Uh, I don't want to say anything that misrepresents the novel. I also don't want to misrepresent the cultures and the history that the show is you know, set in, like, <laughs> I'm being very careful here because I'm really, like, not a completely informed person. I'm just talking about this as a viewer who's really enjoying it. Yeah, those are the disclaimers. So, first impressions. Of course, cinematography is gorgeous. It's very bleak. And you can already feel just how heavy the show is. And immediately, as soon as we meet Sonja, the main character, and her father, God, I'm, I love them immediately. I love how from the very beginning when her mother was pregnant with her and she went to a shaman just to like lift the curse or bless them somehow so that she could keep this baby, you can already see how much family matters to these people. I love how Sonja's father just wanted to protect her from the ugliness of the world. But even at a young age, she was already exposed to how the world or how society treated her father as someone who's disabled since he has a something with his foot. He has a problem with his foot. She knows how society treats people that are different, people who they deem as others. And that is, I think, a major theme in her life and in this show. Ah, uh, what else? In the first episode, I loved the parallel storytelling from the past to Sunja as a child and as a teenager and to the present where it focuses mostly on her grandson, Solomon, and how it just goes back and forth in the past and present. And you can kind of see the connections and the themes in their lives through the generations. As for Sunja, she was portrayed by three different actresses, actually. The child actress was great. I'm really sad we won't get to see much of her because that kid brought tears to my eyes immediately. Um, and then by the end of the first episode, they had just introduced teenage Sunja, played by Kim Min-ha. And in the present day timeline, Sunja is portrayed by Yoon Yo-jong. So just, of course, the legend that she is. Anyway, the first episode really was a good foundation for the themes of the show, you know, a family of survival, of living in a world that treats you as others, right? Who doesn't see you as their equal or who doesn't see you as one of them. And another thing I love, though, about the initial release of this show is that they release three episodes in one day, which is pretty weird, right? They release three episodes in one day and then for the next weeks, one episode a day. But actually, I love that decision because I was able to binge the first three episodes and I did not feel three hours of my life pass by. Like, it, I was that engaged and I could kind of get an idea of where the story was going. You know, this is a wise use of streaming platforms. 
right? Like you have the freedom to do that, to have these weird release schedules and set your own pace for how people could view the show. Because if I only watched one episode at a time, like, yeah, the first episode was good, but I don't think I would be already this invested if I wasn't able to binge those first three episodes at once and really get to know these characters and want to know more of their stories. So yeah, I think it's just super clever the way that they took advantage of the streaming platform. Okay, so I just want to talk about a few of the main characters, the ones that we've really gotten to know well. Something that really amazed me about this show is that I am already so invested in both the past and the present timelines. And I was afraid that, oh, I would be more invested in the past or more invested in the present, and then I wouldn't really care about the other timeline. But no, I think it's a testament to how well they uh, edited or directed this show so that the past and the present timelines kind of have these parallel themes and parallel experiences, even though they are going through vastly different situations and live in different societies and points in history. So it's a story about survival. And you'd think like, oh, if we already know that Sunja will survive in the present, then the past doesn't really matter anymore, right? Because we know that she'll be okay eventually. But... I think Sunja's character in the present timeline has more gravity to her because we get to see her story unfold in the past at the same time. And we see how she became the person that she is today. It's not about the destination. We know the destination. She will survive. She will be able to you know, sustain her family and have two more generations come after her. Yeah, that's the result. But her journey getting there has made her the person that was able to do that. I think it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's really, really well done. And in the present, it's not like she's just, you know, some narrator who talks about her life story and that's all that there is to it. In the present, she still has a journey. If the past was her story of leaving her homeland to survive, in the present, she's coming back, connecting to her roots that she's lost for all these decades. And it's just really interesting how they've shown what she's lost, and how she's coming back into it. Meanwhile, we also have her grandson, Solomon, whose story is also about survival. So Solomon, he's Korean, of course. He grew up in Japan, and then he chose to study in Yale, I think. He went to America, he studied there, and he got a job in, I don't know, I assume Wall Street or some bank, whatever. But he's, you know, making big money, and he's a big shot now, but... No matter where he is, he is othered by the society there. Like in Japan, he's a second-rate citizen. That's how they see Koreans. And in America, he's he's Asian. You know, he, you're still a minority here. So no matter where he goes, he is looked down upon. And that's why he has to struggle so hard to survive. More on him later. I really love his character. Um, who else? Gohansu played by Lee Minho, is a fascinating character as well. Because at times, you know, I can confidently say he's trash. <laughs> but I can also tell that he's lived a difficult life and he's become the person that he is today to survive. That's our keyword. You know, people just do things and become these kinds of people to survive. I don't think we even know half 
of his whole deal, of his whole story. That's why his relationship with Sunja is so interesting because I cannot tell how he's going to treat her. Is he going to help her? Is he going to love her wholeheartedly? Is he going to defend her? Or is he going to make her life even more difficult, even more miserable? I don't know. I really can't tell. Side note, I have to say it. I'm really happy that Lee Min Ho is in this role. I'm happy that he auditioned for this and got it. Because, you know, not going to lie, I've never been a fan of him or his works. And yet, after such a stable and stale career, he's showing people that he wants to achieve things in his career. He wants, you know, different roles from what he's been typecast as. He wants to challenge himself. I'm really happy for him. But yeah, so far, those are the main characters that we've really gotten to know. I cannot do justice to all of their stories, right? There's so much to unpack. There's so many things to be said, not just for them, but also all the other characters that we've been introduced to. Okay, although I know I can't do justice to any of these, I really want to go through some of my favorite moments in the show. And looking at this list, honestly, they're all from episode 4. This was a really, really good episode. Once again, I will not do justice to these, so you better watch them. Because it's really good. Okay, In general, the show is just really good. And there are way more moments that are amazing. I just cannot remember all of them. And I probably will not describe them well either. Okay, first, I have to describe how the show uses subtitles. They regularly alternate between Korean, Japanese, and English. That's what was happening at the time. There were Japanese people in Koreans. And then in the present timeline, uh, Solomon is interacting with Americans, with Japanese people, and then speaking in Korean to his grandmother. They use three different languages, and it's very purposeful when they use a different language. Because the language that they use decides who they are able to include and exclude in a conversation. So Solomon is able to speak all three languages and he's able to connect to everyone, right? Because he speaks and understands all three of them. But like as a character, he is the most disconnected to all his roots. Like he didn't grow up in Korea. He was considered as like a second rate citizen in Japan. And in America, obviously, he's still a minority. And he didn't live there for most of his life. So he's just very disconnected to all three of them. But he's able to connect to all people who speak those languages. So in episode 4, oh, there was this great moment with teenage Sonja in the fish market. So yeah, regularly we just see the languages in different colors. Like English is in white, Japanese is in blue, and Korean is in yellow. And we almost always like understand who's speaking and what they're saying. But then there was this one moment when Sunja was in the fish market where a Japanese guard was calling her, saying something in Japanese. And for the first time, there were no subtitles to, to describe what he was saying. And for a moment, I thought, excuse me, Apple TV, excuse me, what's happening here? I would like to know what's happening. And then I realized, wait a minute, we are in this situation in Sunja's perspective. And she does not speak Japanese. She doesn't know what this guard is saying. And so for a moment, I felt confusion. I felt panic because I didn't know what this guy was saying. And you know, you never know if the guards are mad, if you've done something wrong, if they're going to hurt you. And so I felt her panic for a moment. And I realized 
That's the point. That's why they didn't sub what that guard was saying. Because they want you to experience what she's experiencing in that moment. What an interesting use of the medium. Because, you know, people will say, like, oh, subtitles ruin immersion. That's why I don't like reading them. But in this moment, I felt very immersed. I felt like I was in her exact situation because I did not understand what was going on. And I panicked for a moment. And yeah, just very interesting use of subtitles, of something that you take for granted <laughs> in, in foreign shows like these. Anyway, next scene that really wrecked me. The rice scene. If you watch the show, you know what the rice scene is. Basically, in this episode, Sonja's mother was preparing to send Sonja off with her new husband to, to Japan, to Osaka. And so there were all these scenes where her mom was helping her pack, helping her leave. Before the rice scene, though, oh, I remember this. Her mom was like folding Sonja's clothes alone. She was alone. She was folding Sonja's clothes and packing it into the cloth <laughs> that they wrap things in. I'm very sorry. So her, technically her bag. And then she's done. And she stands up and she walks away. And then she turns back around and starts refolding it. Unfolding, folding, refolding, packing. Over and over again. And I don't know, that really hit me. I really teared up when I saw that. Because it's like, it's her way of delaying the inevitable. I don't know. Oh, that really, I really teared up there. But what really messed me up was the rice scene. Where her mother, you know, went to the market and to the rice vendor and asked for white rice. Because... It's a privilege to be able to eat that. It's so expensive. It's only reserved for the Japanese or for the elite. And so commoners like them rarely, if ever, get a chance to eat white rice. But then she pleaded with that vendor saying like, I am saying goodbye to my daughter and I want this to be my final gift to her, right? Before she leaves the country, presumably forever, she may never come back to Korea. Then there's this long sequence of her mother cooking that rice. And even when she was just cooking the rice, I already started tearing up. Because I just felt how precious that moment was. And then on her wedding night, her mother served her a bowl of white rice. And Sunja was crying while eating it, right? The, the night before she leaves her mother and leaves her country, the whole world that she's known behind, she gets a taste of something that is so rare and so precious to them. And that is her mother's final gift before she leaves for good. And that scene was even more significant because in like an episode or two before that, Sunja in the present timeline, Sunja was eating with this Korean woman in her home. And the woman served her a bowl of white rice. And the moment she took a bite of it, she knew this isn't just regular white rice. This is white rice from Korea. Like, there's a different taste to it. You just, the taste of home. Literally, the taste of home. And she mentioned that, oh, the last time I, this was the last thing I ate in my homeland years, decades ago. And then the next episode, they show you the exact time she had her final meal in Korea. And that's why the rice scene was even more significant. I am not even doing justice to the emotions of that scene. Okay, it really messed me up. I did not think I would be crying over someone eating rice. That was not on my, you know, TV series watching Bingo this year. But it happened and it really, it's really, really beautiful and so meaningful. That's that. And one more, like, favorite moment in the show so far. 
It's this catharsis moment in episode four. So catharsis is just the release of strong repressed emotions. You see people screaming, crying, dancing in the rain, spraying water, spraying alcohol on people, throwing tomatoes at each other, uh, smearing mud on other people's faces. These are very specific examples because these are exact scenes that I've watched in every No Hikyong work, right? In Dear My Friends, in Live, in It's Okay, That's Love. It feels good. Catharsis feels good, not just for the characters, but also for me as a viewer. Because I saw what those characters were going through. I saw how they held themselves back, how they repressed their emotions, and how they felt so deeply, but were unable to express that. And then suddenly they allow themselves to explode. And that is just such an amazing feeling. So yeah, a good catharsis moment really just draws you into it. So, going back to Pachinko, yes. So, here's Solomon's story in the present timeline. He was working in America, but then he was sent back to Japan, and he was tasked to convince this old Korean lady, the woman I was talking about earlier, to sell her house so that they can build a hotel on it. So imagine the story of Up, where Mr. Fredrickson, you know, refused to sell his home and he was surrounded by buildings already. That, essentially that. So Solomon, he sold his soul. He sold his heritage. He sold his own grandmother. He made Sonja convince this lady to sell her home just so they can build this hotel, okay? He was willing to go through all the lengths. He did not care at all just to get this done. But, you know, in the final, like, contract signing, she was still hesitating, right? She still wasn't fully convinced. She still didn't really want to do it, even if they were offering her a billion yen. And then Solomon was trying to appeal to her emotions again. So aside from the, you know, we're both Koreans type of appeal he was also trying to say like you know you bought this for 4,000 yen and now you're selling it for a billion go show all these Japanese how much better you have it now and or do it for your children do it for their futures blah 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 stuff like that he's just appealing to all the emotions he's trying so hard to convince her and then she asked him like if I were your grandmother if you knowing your grandmother's story knowing everything that she sacrificed everything that she survived to be here, to get to where she is, and to have a home like that, would you tell her to sell? And Solomon, for the first time, like broke down his walls and his everything and said, no, no, I wouldn't tell my grandmother to do that. And the old lady walked away and didn't sell her home. And everyone was like, you know, berating him or yelling at him, saying like, God, what a useless Korean. We should have known. We should have known that he wouldn't do anything. He was just like staring there emptily at, at that seat, surrounded by people who didn't respect him, people who still scorned him, who saw him as a either a second-rate citizen or as someone who might be taking their job. And for once, he recognized why that woman refused to sell for so long. Because that home, that house, represented all her struggles to get here. Her struggle to establish her roots and to survive and thrive in a country that scorned her. Just like how he's struggling so hard to survive in this workplace, in these countries, surrounded by people who scorn him. And then he ran. He walked out of that conference room and he ran down the stairs. He ran off the street and started taking off his tie and his coat. And then a few moments later, it's raining and you see him dancing to the music of this band that's busking side of the road. 
it's just a moment where you see him become a person, right? He finally has a heart and a soul as if he's been repressing that for so long, trying to be this kind of big shot guy who's going to survive in this tough world that doesn't respect him, that doesn't take him seriously. And I don't know, just a beautiful moment. I, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, the emotional beats of this show are insane. And... I don't know, needless to say, here's the verdict. I'm finishing it, obviously. Uh, I'm super invested in these characters and their stories. It's beautifully done. I am so incredibly fascinated by how they intersperse the past and the present scenes because there's always a connection, right? There's always a theme, a parallel story with how, you know, they survived in the past and the present. And it's just, it's a beautifully done show. It's brilliant. So yeah, that's it for me today. Yeah, soundtrack number one. There's really not much to say about it. You know, I don't even want to complain or nitpick too much because it is what it is. It's not trying too hard. And we also shouldn't try too hard to find its flaws because I'm sure it doesn't intend to really be you know, great. <laughs> Sorry to say, but yeah. And as for Pachinko, I mean, the show's just brilliant. It's just really brilliantly done. I don't know anything about the novel. I don't know much about, you know, the history, the cultures they represent. I'm really just enjoying the story and the characters and the directing and writing, everything. It's just, it's a great show. I'm very excited to see where it goes. And yeah, yeah, that's it for me today. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you soon. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to leave a comment, like, subscribe, follow, and tell me what you thought about today's episode. See you soon!